We are in the next section. We wrapped up the seven trumpets. We went into three asides. And now there is one aside still left to go through. So the first three sides were kind of grouped together, and this is kind of on its own. This is chapter 14. In this section, this aside is contrasted to the rises of the beast. The believers before the throne of Yahweh are a reminder that Yahweh will preserve his people despite the attack of the beast and even despite their deaths at the hands of the beast. The section ends with three angelic announcements that declare the eventual fall of the beast's kingdom. Every time, like, so to speak, hell breaks loose on the earth and there's these judgments from God being unleashed, it's always followed up with a promise that God will preserve his people. Not physically protected. He has never promised to physically protect us, but to spiritually protect us, to guide us, and that ultimately death has no hold over us. And, and there's always that, that, that theme that is going on there. And then at the same time, there's always this promise and reminder that the evil will be dealt with. And so no matter how bad it gets, God constantly promises he will pres- preserve us um, and bring us into heaven one day and ultimately back to this earth. And then at the same time, he will deal with all the evil. And, and that's the main message of this book. The main message is the sovereignty and the provision of God through all these things that are happening. And it doesn't matter whether you believe that these are literal final day cosmic judgments that are going to just rain down globally or if these are events that we're creating through our own sinfulness and God is also giving us over. No matter what it is, God is faithful to preserve us, um, to guide us, to bring us into redemption and to deal with all the evil in the world. And that, that's by far the main message that we see here. And so in chapter 7, we have the 144,000 and the great multitude that are standing before God. They're all being sealed and they're made a part of God. And I take the view that those are the same group of people, two different perspectives, Israel and Gentiles coming together in the same body of Christ. Now in chapter 14, we come back to them again. And God is showing you that after all the beasts, the actions of the beasts, we're seeing the believers still preserved and sealed and protected by God. And as much as like the chapters and the Bible are so messed up, whoever determined the chapters, it is interesting that the sealing of the believers is seven, completion, and the return back to the believers is 14, and that's a multiple of seven. So there's no way that anybody was thinking that when they were doing chapters because they didn't think when they did any other chapter in the Bible. Chapter 14, 1 through 3. Then I looked, and here was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I also heard a sound coming out of heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the loud thunder. Now the sound I heard was like that made by the harpists playing their harp, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one was able to learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. 
Mount Zion, we talked about this. Mount Zion is a spiritual name for the mountain that the temple of God was on in the, the First Testament. It's where the tabernacle was located at multiple occasions. is where the temple was built. And it became the spiritual name for the true worshipers, the true place of God. Not necessarily connected to the temple, not necessarily connected to Jerusalem necessarily, but connected to the true worshipers, the true believers. This is made even more clear when Mount Zion no longer had true worshipers on it. By the time we get to Manasseh, um, the grandson of Hezekiah, or the son of Hezekiah, and he is literally bringing idols into the temple of God and turning it into a smorgasbord of idolatry to the pagan gods. And then later descendants of Judah will do the same thing. And by the time we get to Ezekiel, right before the destruction of the temple, Ezekiel was in Babylon. He was in exile. And, and God, it says that the Spirit of God grabbed Ezekiel by the back of the neck, so to speak, and then took him all the way to Jerusalem, hundreds of miles south um, west of there, and gave him a tour. And he said, look at this, and showed him idol after idol, and women doing inappropriate things, and men sacrificing to the pagan gods, and, and these giant statues of Tuma, Tomas, idols, and all these kind of stuff. And at that point, it was no longer a true place a true place of worship. It was defiled, it was satanic, it was pagan in every kind of way. Yet, at the same time, the prophets keep referring to Zion as the true place of God. The true place of God, where true worshipers are. So this made it very clear when we get to the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah specifically, and even Zechariah, that he's not referring to a literal, that literal geographical hill. And Jerusalem anymore because that literal hell is not godly in any kind of way anymore. He's talking about a day where true worshipers will worship there. And so this brings us to Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2. These two passages are almost the same. There's minor differences. They're very parallel like the, like the Gospels when you have synoptic stories of the life of Christ. I, I, these are two of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Because it really encapsulates the, the vision, the dream that God has one day. And I'm going to just read that. I've, re, I've referenced to it multiple. So Micah chapter 4, verse 1. In the future, Yahweh's temple mount will be the most important mountain of all. It will be more prominent than all the hills, and people will stream to it. Now, we talked about this at the very beginning of this Bible study. We talked about it in other studies um, the cosmic mountain. The cosmic mountain is where the gods live and dwell. And in all the pagan world, the cosmic mountains are vertically much higher than anywhere the people live. They're on hills and mountains like Mount Olympus. And they're horizontally completely removed from the people. And so the gods want nothing to do with the people. And there's this idea of king of the hill. The people can climb to the top of the mountain and eat ambrosia and Greek mythology. And then they can become a god themselves, so to speak, even though, depending on the story, that just kills humans. But God, in the garden, he builds his cosmic mountain, and it's level on the ground. He puts Adam and Eve right into it. And then when he comes down the tabernacle, he puts his cosmic mountain. The tabernacle is a microcosm of this tabernacle. He puts it right in the midst of the people on the dirt and allows the tents to come right up to it and invites the people to enter in it as long as they're part of the Abrahamic covenant and come with an animal for sacrifice. They can come in the presence of God. This does not exist in any other religion at all. 
Yet Israel constantly screws us up. Adam and Eve screwed up the Garden of Eden. Ezra screws up the tabernacle. They're going to screw up the temple and over and over. And so God envisions a day where there will be a true cosmic mountain that will no longer be defiled by anybody. And that's what he's talking about. And it will be more prominent than all the other hills because he's a sovereign God. And people will stream to it. The Garden of Eden, they were kicked out because of their sin. The tabernacle had restricted access. Only certain people with an animal sacrifice could get in, and only certain people could get even deeper, and only the high priest one time a year could get even deeper, and that was only access to fire. And yet God says on this mountain, I will be there, and people will stream to it. Verse 2, many nations will come, saying, Come, let us go up to Yahweh's mountain, to the temple of Jacob's God, so he can teach us his commands, and we will live by his laws. For Zion will be the source of instruction. Yahweh's teaching will proceed from Jerusalem. Now this is important because remember by the time of Christ, the Jews have become exclusive. No, not you Gentiles. God didn't choose you and he didn't give you the law. So screw you. We are his chosen people. And they literally believed that. And the ones who didn't quite embrace as harshly as the Pharisees still were kind of like, yeah. I mean, you saw those the disciples. Even the disciples were like, totally bought into like, hey, the Samaritans don't like you. Should we call down fire on them? Like, right? Seriously? So this is a prominent theology. Yet God made it very clear in Micah and Isaiah and Zechariah and Zechariah. There's not a prophetic book. Well, there are a few. There are very few prophetic books that do not include all the nations coming to God, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of social status, regardless of physical health. Because that was another one that a lot of people had trouble with was you are suffering because God has punished you for sins. And so all the nations will come, not just Israel invited, but all the nations will come. And this Temple Mount, this will be a place of teaching, instruction, where we will hear God himself teach us. No longer a priest, no longer a prophet, no longer a rabbi, just God himself. And Jesus kind of emulates this a little bit with the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, meaning the Pharisees, but I tell you, because I am the authority of the law. I am the th- most authoritative teacher. He will arbitrate between many peoples and settle disputes between many distant nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares. So he will settle disputes and he will truly be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. And to the point that people will beat their weapons into farming tools, the Garden of Eden, to work until the land. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not use weapons against other nations and they will no longer train for war because there will be no more evil. There will be no more sin. Each will sit under his own grapevine or under his own fig tree without any fear. Grapevine was a symbol of the abundance of life, the joy of life, going beyond just the staple of bread, pure survival, and into the full relaxation, abundance of life and joy. What God is saying is that everybody will have plenty. There will be no more starvation, no more poverty, no more want in any kind of a way. Each will sinners his own grave. The Yahweh will command his armies. The Yahweh who commands his armies has decreed it. Though all the nations follow the respect of gods, we will follow Yahweh forever. And so there will be certain people who will not stream to this mountain. And you need to understand that what God says he will destroy the nations, meaning the political government entities. 
but all the nations will come to the mountain of God, meaning the individual members of the nations who abandon their allegiance to their governments and join Yahweh on his cosmic mountain. And so this is one of the most beautiful pictures of the idea of that there's this cosmic mountain where all people are invited into the presence of God. There's no more evil. There's no more sin. There's no more war. There's no more poverty or starvation in any kind of a sense. And everyone's welcome to be there. And this is the idea that we see with this picture of Mount Zion. And, and Revelation 14 is saying, this is the day. It is happening. It began to happen when we all accepted Christ and Christ dwelt in us, creating a spiritual Garden of Eden, Cosmic Mountain within us. And it will literally be fulfilled when Christ comes back. And we will see that in chapter 21 and chapter 22. And so there's an image here of this being fulfilled and realized as these believers are dying. So I also heard this sound of the coming of heaven like the sound of many waters. And so they're, they're praising God and they're singing songs to him and they are redeemed. And notice it says that these are all, they sing a song that no one can sing. The elders can't sing it, which means, remember, this is a song of redemption. The Lamb has redeemed us back in chapter 5. The Lamb has purchased us with his blood. And this is a new song because no one could sing that song before Christ because no one had that concept and it hadn't happened yet. And it says that only the people sealed, only the believers can sing this song. Not the living creatures, not the elders, not the cherubim, not anyone. And this also seems to point to the fact that the great multitude is the same as 144,000 because where are they now? They're, they're not there. If you see them as separate, then it's like, wait a minute, are the Gentiles not there anymore? Are the Gentiles not allowed to sing this song? And that doesn't seem to make sense in any kind of way. And the way all throughout the Bible, God is merging Jews and Gentiles together into one people. He makes no distinctions between them. And when we get to Paul, he says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek or, um, or um, Greek or Jew. There's no more man or woman, that kind of stuff. It's just we're all in Christ. And it feels very wrong, very contradictory for God to merge these two groups constantly. Ephesians says the barrier wall between Jews and Gentiles have been torn down. To constantly merge them as one people, you are grafted into the tree of Israel. And then he gets here and says, well, never mind, the Gentiles are not there anymore. So it doesn't seem to fit. And so they're all there before the throne. Verse 4, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from the humanity as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found on their lips, and they are blameless. Now that sounds very monastery and absolute perfection. And you're kind of like, okay, what's going on? The 144,000 are described in four ways here. Four ways. First, they have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Most likely, that's not exactly what's going on here. That's not the picture. Nowhere is he portrayed this idea that marrying a woman and remaining a virgin is a, a greater mark of Christianity and that marrying a woman, you're defiling yourself. That also implies that only men are making it to the cosmic mountain. And I don't think we really want to go any of those directions here in any kind of way. This is not necessarily about just absolute virginity and you are more holy if you do not marry. That's a false Augustinian view of Christianity. 
They are not literally virgins. Nowhere in the Bible does Yahweh ever call this to be celibate. Um, nowhere is sex within marriage portrayed as defiling. This is a metaphor from abstaining from idolatry. Over and over and over again, when God refers to the virgin believers, he means faithfulness to Yahweh. You have not been defiled. And that is very clear. I give you many passages. Hosea chapter 2, Isaiah 57, Ezekiel chapter 6, Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel 23, Revelation 2, Revelation 9, Revelation 14. And that's just a few selections where many, many times God says, the virgin daughter of Israel belongs to me. And it's always in the context of idolatry, especially the book of Hosea. Hosea is all about the idea that idolatry is like spiritual adultery. And that's clearly through Hosea. And, and there's a place in Isaiah chapter 2, I think it's Isaiah chapter 2, or Isaiah 57, no, Isaiah chapter 2, where it says, the virgin daughter of Israel shakes her head at you, okay, as you come to try to attack her. And when we get to... Um, Second Kings chapter 17, we're introduced to Hezekiah. And, and, and God promises that Assyria will not attack Judah. And it says, the virgin daughter of Zion laughs and mocks you, O Assyria, as you try to get in here. You will not take one stone down, nor launch one arrow into the city, for I will protect this city, and you will never enter. And I will turn you back the way that you came. And so the idea is God's virgin is those who do not defile themselves with idolatry. This is portrayed in two different ways. The bride of Christ or the bride of Yahweh and the virgin daughter. Both of these images are used to refer to purity of not worshiping idols. And that's the idea here is the metaphor. Even many of the passages in the law about what to do with adulterous women have more to do with just faithfulness in general. Okay? A lot of people think it's kind of sexist, like God's always just punishing the adulterous woman. What about the adulterous man? Well, because all those passages are bigger, they're, they're literal, the law is literal, but they also point to a bigger metaphorical image of the man is Christ, so to speak, and, and Israel is the bride. And, and in that metaphor, the man is never adulterous. Okay? But... You can read multiple other places in the law where God knows men can do that too. So, um, but you had to see it in the bigger picture. And the idea too is if it's true for this member of the genders, it's also true for all members of the gender. Um, because when you read the law in its entirety, it's so clear that God is not sexist. It's so clear. If you isolate passages, yeah, but I can isolate any comment that you make out of context and make you out to be lots of things. But when you put it in the bigger picture... It's so obvious the law the law gives more value to women than any religion in the entire world does. In fact, our entire feminist movement was born out of the law and the biblical picture of male and female together. So that's a little side note, but I just want to make that clear um, before I just walk away. So this refers to spiritual idolatry. And so what he's make, saying, and this is clear too, in the seven church, we talked about this when we went through the seven letters of the seven churches, God constantly referred to adultery and defiling yourselves and, and sexual immorality. And it was so clear in that context that it had to do with the religion of following the beliefs of ba Balaam and following the beliefs of Jezebel and following the beliefs of the Nicolaitans and all that kind of stuff. It was so clear from the very beginning that this has everything to do with idolatry. 
The second way that they're described is that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Not thy will be done, but your will be done, so to speak. That unlike the world, which follows the message of the beast and its propaganda machine that disseminates, the true believer meditates on the word of Yahweh and obeys the commands of the Son. And you have to realize that there's really, I, I mentioned this in my Compare Religions class, but I really truly believe there's only two religions in the world. The, the, the Judaism in its most complete ultimate form, which leads to Christianity, not modern day works-oriented Judaism, but Judeo-Christian religion in this biblical sense, which is a faith-oriented religion of grace that follows Christ. And then every other religion that's a works-oriented religion, where you try to work yourself into heaven, that kind of stuff. And, And as you read, what you will find is what's interesting is this idolatry says the world just follows the beast. They go after idols and they go after themselves. And every religion you look at, they will either guide you towards this impersonal, non-relational kind of a God in some kind of way, or in the, the, the satanic Bible called the Book of the Law, written by Aleister Crawley, there's only one command, and that's do what thou wilt, for that shall be the whole of the law which if you want to translate into modern-day America, that's follow your heart, just do it, have it your way. And that's the idea. Unlike everyone else in the world that follows after idols or follows under their own will, their own desire, um, thelema, the will, the power of the will, these people, they follow Christ. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and ultimately displayed when Christ says, not my will, but your will. Third, they were purchased with the Lamb's blood and have responded to his great sacrificial love by offering their lives to him. And so Christ has purchased them with his blood. They responded by saying, I want to be a part of you. And then they have presented their bodies as a living sacrifice to God, Romans chapter 12. And this marks them. And fourth, no lie was found on their mouths. Now, this doesn't mean that these believers never lie. You're like, crap, that's not me, okay? What the idea is that they remain faithful to their confession of who Christ is in their life. We all sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the definition of what what God desires goes all the way back to Enoch, where it says that Enoch walked with God and he was translated and was no more. That's what the Hebrew literally says. What does that translate mean? I have no idea. But what it means is something different happened to him than the normal death that people experience. Why? Because he walked with God. And then when we get all the way towards the end, we see in First John, God is light, and those who are in him walk with God, and they walk in the light. And so the idea is that it's when you walk with God. So what is the definition of walking with God? The definition of walking with God is that you pursue a faithful obedience to Yahweh, and when you do sin, you repent quickly. You repent quickly. And if you're doing that, then you may not be literally righteous without sin, because none are righteous, but you can have what's called a functional righteousness, where God looks at you like Abraham and declare, credits to you righteousness. The righteousness that allows you to get into heaven by faith. By faith. 
That's the idea that's being here, is that they were faithful to their confession in Christ. They did not deny him. And even in some points, they did not deny him, even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. The contrast here is the between the world that has been marked on the forehead with the anti-Shema, that they are going to follow the beast, and those who are the believers who have been marked on the forehead with the Shema of God. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall have no other gods before me. And they follow God. And all this goes back as to these marks. We see the mark placed on Cain. We see the mark placed on the followers of Israel. And Judah is those who belong. The idea is you will be sealed. Everyone will be branded on the forehead, so to speak. I do not believe that this is a literal branding. We're not going around. I have, I've not seen any brandings on anybody as I've gone around. The idea is that you're being branded in your, your, your commitment. Your will is being surrendered to God. And that's what the forehead means. This is why it says put on the helmet of salvation that covers the head, the brain. It says take every thought captive. If anything is good or noble or true, think on these things. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Over and over and over again, when the Bible talks about salvation and commitment to God, it focuses on the mind and the will and the decisions. It does not focus on the American, give your heart to Jesus emotionally. Yes, emotions are important. I'm a Christian because I have reasoned that the Bible and Christianity is more valid than the others. But I'm also a Christian because I've experientially and emotionally had an encounter with God. And both those are married together and are just as valid and necessary. However, like Jesus said, he didn't say, if you feel really warm and fuzzy inside, then give your life to me. He says, no one goes into battle without first looking at the enemy and counting the cost. Nobody builds a tower unless, until they first figure out whether they can or not. Therefore, you don't follow me unless you've really thought this through and you've counted the cost and you know what you're getting into. And so this is the idea. The salvation is you're, you're in your mind. You have made a conscious choice to surrender your will and your life to Christ and you're following him. And the world has made a conscious choice to surrender themselves to whatever the world has to offer. The latest fad, the newest political movement that's happening, the newest social media thing that's coming up, whatever it is, that ultimately is just the same thing over and over again, and that's the beast. That's the contrast. That's the contrast. The question the Bible's always asking in every book is who are you going to bow down to and who are you going to serve? And the Bible's main point is, who is God, who are you, and how you can know him. And once you learn those three things, the question is, who are you going to bow down to, and who are you going to serve? That's the question. And the Bible is making it very clear here, you either serve one master or the other. There is no in-between. Asking about the mark on the hand. So the Bible, when Deuteronomy says, bind these truths to your foreheads, your arms, and your doorposts. And so the idea there is that you are giving your thoughts and your, your will and your decisions and your desires to God. You're surrendering it to him. Your hands represent your works, your obedience, your deeds. 
Um, you're surrendering those to him. And then the door frame means that you are giving your, your family, your house, the, the dwelling, the, 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 the environment that you create, the space that you create around you, your social life, so to speak. You're surrendering it all to him. And so you're going to make it all conform to his will and his desire so that no matter who comes into your circle, they will hear you teach when you wake up, when you walk, when you lie down to your children, this is who my God is. And that kind of goes back to Joshua. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And so that's the idea of the great Shema, as that these truths are, and if you need to bind those literally to your body and to your mirrors and your doorposts to remind you because we forget very quickly, then so be it. But God didn't mean it to be literal and just tattoo these all over the place. He meant for it to be a part of who you are. But obviously, we, can, we need to do everything in our power to bind ourselves to that. And so, yes, we have things in our house that are literally up there as reminders. Um, but it's more than just the binding on the physical things. It's to be a part of who we are. And so that's the idea. It's a good question.